We have two scriptures this morning. The first one is Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. And then we're going to flip over and read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. So we'll start with Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and... As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May he bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we were worshiping, I began to think about how galaxies often look. And right at the center of these massive things that we call galaxies is most often this huge bubble of light. And that bubble of light is the very thing that attracts everything into its orbit. Everything that is inside of its gravitational pull and cannot escape. And you, Lord Jesus, as far as life goes, are that central light. And so I pray that you would open up our eyes to the glory of who you are this morning. I pray that you would attract us, Jesus. I pray that you would help us to fix our attention upon you. Lord, the truth is that we are distracted by so many things. So many other lesser lights get our attention and keep our attention. And we confess that as sin. And we ask for your help to look away from those things and look toward you now. Help us, Lord, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to look full into your wonderful face so that the things of this world may grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, the heart of faith is being unalterably attracted to you. And so I pray in your great name that you would cause that to happen now. Cause glory of Christ to be a people of faith because we are a people who are enamored of you, who are attracted to you, who cannot stop looking at you, gazing upon you, seeking you, wanting you, trusting you, hoping in you, following after you. 
O Lord, please hear my prayer and please answer for the glory of your great name, I pray. Amen. We have been talking about Ephesians 6, 16 and the shield of faith for several weeks now. This is the sixth sermon that I've given to the subject of faith. And I want to wrap up this discussion now by looking with you at Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. So if you haven't, please turn there because we'll be spending all of our time in Hebrews 12. They've just read it, so I won't read the text again. But let me point out to you that this text is laid out in a sort of a, a typical since-then fashion. So what I mean is that the author begins with this clause, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the sense, and then he draws three thens. There are three conclusions that he pulls off of that condition. Namely, that we are to lay aside every weight and sin. Number two, that we are to run our race with endurance. And number three, that we are to look to Jesus, or more literally, that we are to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so what I want to do this morning is begin by dealing with the sense clause and and kind of getting our minds around that, and then I'll deal with each of the three conclusions that the author draws from there. This phrase... The great cloud of witnesses. We need to be careful not to read that phrase as the cloud of great witnesses. So it says the great cloud of witnesses, but I fear that many of us hear it as the cloud of great witnesses. In other words, I think that many of us instinctually take the word great to mean that the likes of Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Rahab and the other people that are mentioned in Hebrews 12, that they are great and that they are to be honored and that they are to be esteemed. Hebrews 11, in fact, is sometimes referred to as the hall of faith. You've heard it called this before? The hall of faith. Well, I understand the sentiment behind that, but I reject the logic of it. Because a hall of fame, or in this case a hall of faith, is designed to do what? It's designed to fix our attention on the people who are honored there, right? If you're to go to the baseball hall of fame or the rock and roll hall of fame or whatever, the whole point is for you to fix your attention on the people that are there. But that is not what the author of Hebrews is up to in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11, he's trying to get us to fix our attention on the faithfulness of God. And the way he does that is by by showing how God was faithful in life after life after life after life after life after life right up to his own time. He's not trying to fix our attention on Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Rahab and all the rest. He's trying to fix our attention upon God. Each of these people had challenges and difficulties and things that they had to suffer. And yet they found God to be faithful in all things. And their whole life is meant now to point toward and scream toward the fact that God is faithful. And if you will trust Him, you will find Him to be faithful as well. The focus of the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11 and 12 is not the witnesses themselves. That's what I'm trying to point at. The focus of the cloud of witnesses is Almighty God. That's why they're called witnesses, right? Witnesses don't testify to themselves. Witnesses are called in to point away from themselves and to testify toward another. And in this case, that other is none less than God Almighty. 
So, this word great in Hebrews 12.1 doesn't refer to the individual that make individuals that make up the cloud. It refers to the cloud itself. And here's what I mean. If you look in the Greek language, that word great literally means enormous. One of my dictionaries said that it means that it's, it, it refers to something that's large beyond all expectations. So you look at it and you just think to yourself, that is huge. It's massive. It's enormous. And that's the function of this word in Hebrews 12.1. It is an enormous cloud of witnesses. So the author in chapter 11 had mentioned about 20 specific people in chapter 11. And then he acknowledged at the end of the chapter that he could have named many, many more people. But here in chapter 12, verse 1, we see by the usage of this word great that he could have named not hundreds of others, but thousands and thousands and thousands of others. I really think that the author of Hebrews was captivated by a glimpse of something like what John saw in chapter 5 of Revelation, when he said that ten thousands upon ten thousands were gathered around the throne, worshiping and praising Him who was slain. I think the author of Hebrews saw a vision of countless tens of thousands of people who had found God to be faithful in every circumstance of life. And now these ten thousands of ten thousands are surrounding us who are living and breathing and seeking with all of our heart to trust in God. Wherever our lives turn, no matter what circumstances we face, no matter how difficult it is, the message of Hebrews 12 is that at that turn, there is a cloud of witnesses there testifying to you that God is faithful in that particular circumstance. There's nothing you are going through that is unique to you. Every single thing that you are going through, any of us and all of us, Others have already gone through it. And in the midst of it, they have found God to be faithful. And their lives are screaming this fact to us now. And they're begging for us to trust in Him. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10 this, and I put this up on the screen so you wouldn't have to turn there. He said, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. And then here's the key that I'm pointing to. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Beloved, there are literally countless thousands indeed millions of people who have gone before us over the last 2,000 years since Peter wrote these words, and they are testifying to the fact that these words are true. God was faithful to them in every single circumstance of life, and if we will trust in Him, He will be faithful to us as well. We will one day join this cloud of witnesses and point our attention toward Him. And this leads me to one more thing I want to say about the cloud of witnesses. I think that many of us have something like the following picture in our mind for Hebrews 12. We picture a stadium, right? A big stadium. And in the stands, the, the seats are totally filled, and they're filled up with this cloud of witnesses. They're filled up with the likes of Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Rahab and all the others that the writer of Hebrews mentions. They're absolutely packed full. And there we are, 
we who are living, we're down on the field and we're running with all of our might and these people are looking at us and cheering us on and they're trying to help us win the victory. Well, there are parts of that vision that I think are true, but there's one crucial part that I don't think is right and I just want to seek to adjust it in our minds. There's no doubt in my mind that the writer of Hebrews does have a stadium in his brain when he wrote chapter 12. There's no doubt in my mind at all. John Anderson and I had the privilege of looking at some of the ancient stadiums when we were in Greece and in Italy, and I'm certain that he had those kinds of stadiums in his mind when he wrote this. And I'm certain that in his mind the cloud of witnesses is filling the seats, and we're down on the ground running around. But here's where I take issue with the image. I don't think that the attention of the cloud of witnesses is focused on us, I think their attention is focused on Jesus Christ. They're not looking at us and cheering over us. Rather, they're looking to Christ and trying to get us to point our attention toward Christ. They're not yelling at us things like, You can do this! They're not trying to get us to believe in ourselves and struggle and strain with all of our might to win the race. They're focused on Jesus Christ and they're shouting with one voice, He can do this! Just trust in Him. Hope in Him. Look to Him. Center yourself upon Him. Focus with intensity upon Him. And you will see that He can do this. The cloud of witnesses is fixed on Jesus, not on us. They're looking at Him. They're pointing toward Him. And they're trying with all of their might to get us to turn our eyes upward. Upward, upward. Steve Shepard, when he was being interviewed to be the worship leader here, he asked me one day over at the Perkins, he asked me, what is it that you really want in a worship leader? He said, I read the stuff, but what is it that you really want? And I said, Steve, what I'm looking for is a partner to come here with me and put our fingers under the chin of God's people and push their heads upward toward God. That's it. We're not trying to entertain people or impress people. We just want them to fix their eyes upon Jesus Christ. And this is the function of the cloud of witnesses as well. They're not all about us. Life in Christ is not all about us. It's about Christ. And they're just trying to get you to fix your eyes. Fix your eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And the the thing is that we are literally surrounded by such as these. Literally surrounded. And so the author goes on to draw three conclusions, and I'll talk about them now in turn. Number one, he says, Let us therefore lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The Greek word here for lay aside literally means to take things off of one's body. So it was often used to talk about taking clothes or whatever off of the body. And the picture here that the author has in mind is that we're trying to run down there on the field, But we've got weights on our shoulders and on our backs that are slowing us down. And we also have these sins that are wrapping around and clinging to our lives. And they're making it hard to move our arms and our legs. And they're making it hard to run and make any progress with Christ. And so he's strongly exhorting us not to be complacent about this stuff. He's saying, you can do something about this. Yes, there are weights on you. Yes, there are things wrapping around and constricting you, but there's something you can do. And that is to peel them off and lay them aside. And he's strongly exhorting us to do that. He's exhorting us not to be complacent people, but to do anything we can to avoid unnecessary pain. Yeah, there is a measure of pain that everyone who runs with Christ must endure. This is part of the plan. 
But there is also pain that we bring upon ourselves that is unnecessary. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, peel it off, lay it aside, do away with it. And i got to tell you, I'm very, very glad that he made this distinction between weights that need to be taken off and sins which need to be taken off. Two different things. Not one thing, but two things. And I think the distinction is this. Sins are things that we know are bad. That's clear. But I think weights are things in our lives that are not bad in themselves, but they need to be let go of if we're to continue making progress with Christ. And I don't know about you, but I'm really helped by that distinction because there's some things I struggle with in my life because they're not bad, and yet I feel God calling me to let them go. There are hobbies and interests and goals in our lives which are not sinful, but which are impeding our progress with Christ. So let me just give you a few examples. Please don't feel picked on. I didn't have anybody particular in mind when I picked these couple of examples, except for the last one because I'm picking on myself. So especially you men, I'm about to push a button and please don't be that mad at me. Some of you love hunting. We're up here in Elk River and people love to hunt up in this place. And some of you are already giving a ton of your time to going out in the woods and scouting out. And in the next months, you're going to give a lot of time to hunting, a whole lot of time, weekend after weekend for months and months to come here. There's nothing wrong with hunting in and of itself, right? There's nothing wrong with the hobby. There's nothing wrong with the activity. There's nothing wrong with shooting something and eating it to the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But for some of you, all of the time that you'll give to hunting is keeping you from running the race that God has set before you this fall. The Lord has some things that He wants you to do this fall, and it's going to take time. And if you give all that time to hunting, you won't be able to give your time to the Lord. And so He would say to you, Brother, Son, set it aside that you might run your race. Not everybody's got to do this, but some of you need to set hunting aside or at least draw it back quite a bit in order to run your race with Christ. This is a weight on you that needs to be put aside. Others of you, you love to listen to sermons. You love to read a lot of theological books. I know that some of you listen literally to sermon after sermon, day after day after day after day. And there's nothing wrong in and of itself with listening to good Bible teaching. Lord knows that this whole church is built on the premise that good Bible teaching is necessary to the glory of God and the good of His people. But there can be a point where a good thing becomes a bad thing and you can give so much of yourself to a good thing that you can't, you don't have time left over to run the race that's set before you. So as I was praying about it yesterday, I was, I got this image in my mind that some of you need to stop taking in so many theological calories, if you will, because you're getting really overweight spiritually speaking here. You gotta stop taking in so many calories and start expending more through obedience through service, through evangelism. There's a time where too much information is too much information. And you need to begin applying these things to your lives. Not everyone's got to dial that back. But for some of you, the Lord has a race for you to run this fall, and you've got to dial back the time that you give to even good things that you might be able to run that race. You know that I love cycling. I'm really passionate about being on my bicycle. And I had, I think, four major goals this year to achieve on my bike. Three of those four I've already achieved, and I had one more to achieve that I really, really still want to achieve. And my plan was to train in a certain way during August and September, and then uh, try to achieve my goal at the end of September or the beginning of October. But here's the deal. 
as I got back from vacation and began to pray about this upcoming year, and as I began to labor in the field of glory of Christ fellowship, the Lord made it very clear to me that what He's laid before me this fall does not leave me enough time to train to reach that final goal that I have for cycling this year. And I love Jesus Christ more than I love my hobbies, and so I let that go. I've still been riding, I've still been trying to exercise and be a healthy man of God, but I had to let a particular kind of focus and time commitment go so that I could run with Christ. There are many things in our lives that are good in themselves. They are not sinful. But they have to be set aside if we're to run the race that Christ has before us. I put this sentence up on there, and I'd really like you to remember this. Not every good thing has to be laid aside by every Christian, but some good things have to be laid aside by every Christian. So we can't judge each other about these things because for some of you, you need to let hunting go completely. And for others of you, God is saying, go ahead and take it up for the first time. His message to each of us will not be the same and we can't judge each other. But we have to know this, that every single Christian has to let some good things go that they might run the race that's set before them. And so what we need to do is encourage each other. And specifically, we need to encourage each other to love Jesus Christ more than we love anything else. We need to encourage each other to have the sheer guts to let things go that we love and that others love doing with us so that we might run with Christ. This is not an easy thing, and we need each other to do this. So here's an action step for each of us to take this week. I want to encourage you, either later this afternoon or early this week, please don't put this off because I'm afraid you'll forget, and this is important for your life. Take some time this week and get in a place where you can just be alone with God and ask Him to help you see the weights in your life that you need to let go right now. There are some things in every single one of our lives that we need to let go. And the thing is, I don't know what those are. But God does know what those are. I don't even know what those are in my life right now. I'm planning this afternoon or tomorrow, which is my day off, to spend a couple of hours with the Lord just saying, please, Lord, help me see these things. Help me see these things. I know it's scary to do that because the truth is that we love the things we love, right? If we, if we didn't love the things we love, we wouldn't be struggling to let them go. We love the things we love. But to be a Christian is to love Jesus more than the things we love, right? And so we have to stop being afraid to put our lives before Him and just say, Lord, let me see myself as you see myself. And then help me to divest myself of weights, which do give me a kind of joy, so that I might know the better joy of running the race that you have set before me. So, whatever the Lord would say to you, I just really want to encourage you to go before Him and ask Him to help you see yourself as He sees you. Now, not only do we need to lay aside those weights, these are things that are not sinful, but need to be let go, but we also need to lay aside the sin that clings so closely to us. Two things. Now, these sins, obviously enough, are the things in our lives which there's really not um, debate in us about whether or not they're good. We know these things are not good. We know these things are destructive. We know that we can't tolerate them in our lives if we're to go forward with Christ. Now, it could be that sin has numbed us a little bit and we've begun to justify ourselves. We've begun to wonder whether or not the things that we're engaging in are acceptable or not. That could be. Sin is a very deceitful thing. But really, if you just took no more than 10 or 15 minutes... The kinds of things I think Hebrews is pointing at here are the things that you would clearly acknowledge before Christ. I know that's sin. I've been justifying it, but I know that that's sin. And these things are trying to impede us 
from running the race that Christ has set before us, not so much by pushing back against us, but by wrapping themselves around our lives and squeezing so that we can't run. Now, I get that idea from the particular word that the author of Hebrews uses here for our little phrase, cling so closely. In Greek, that's one word, cling so closely. And that word literally means to place something around another thing, and then, then that thing will constrict. So it means to wrap around and tighten. A great image to get in your mind right now is that of a big old boa constrictor. Imagine it just slowly winding its way around you and then it begins to constrict and constrict and constrict and constrict until it squeezes the life right out of you. That's the picture of sin that the author has in mind here. Sin is keeping you from moving your arms and moving your legs so you can't run forward. And he's saying you need to peel that off and throw it away. You need to take action. You need to not tolerate that stuff, but peel it off and throw it away. Now, every sin has this kind of constricting effect in our lives, right? Every sin that you could think of or that you could name does what boa constrictors do. It wraps around us, it squeezes the life out of us, and in fact, at some point, it causes death in us. But I don't think the writer of Hebrews here has sin like in a big, huge, generalized way in his mind I think he would rather us think about those particular things that are clinging so closely to us in particular. So each of us sins in all kinds of ways that we don't know. But there are three or four or five things, I bet, that each of us is really familiar with. They're sort of our pet sins, if you will. And the truth is, we like them. We've let them into our lives. We keep letting them into our lives. And they just slither around us and slither around us and squeeze us and keep us from running. I think the author of Hebrews has those particular sins in mind. Obviously, when you peel those away, there'll just be more stuff to peel away. But again, I think we'll be really helped here to obey His commands if we don't think about sin in a great big general sense, but just get real with yourself. Just look in the mirror. You know what these things are. I I was reading one of my journals from six years ago uh, yesterday, and I was just blown away how I was struggling with the same two or three stupid things that I'm still struggling with today. It's like, Jesus, how many years will it take me to get over these stupid little things? How many years? And I'll bet you every one of us could name three, four, or five things that are like that. Get those things in your mind, because I think that's what he'd have us focus on. And I just want to ask you the question, what are they? What are they? As you take some time with the Lord later today, ask Him not just to show you the weights, but ask Him to show you the three or four or five particular sins that you have allowed to slither around you and constrict you and keep you from running with Christ. Again, I know this is scary. I know this is uh, something we resist. This is not something we want to do. The reason we have pets is because we like those pets, right? And the reason we have pet sins is because we like those pet sins. We don't want to let go of them. We get a certain kind of joy out of them. And we think that the joy that we get out of them is greater than the joy we'll get out of Christ if we just trust Him. But that's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Sin is totally deceitful. And it tells you it will give you joy, but in the end it ends up sucking joy out of you. That's the thing. I love, there's two places in the Bible, and pardon me, but I don't remember where either of them are. But I think one of them's in Revelation, and the other might be Ezekiel. But where God said to a prophet, He said, Here, prophet, take this scroll and I want you to eat it. And in your mouth it's going to taste really sweet, but in your stomach it's going to be really bitter. And that's what sin is like. 
It tastes sweet in the mouth. It tastes satisfying in the mouth. There's a sort of instantaneous gratification and joy that comes, but in the stomach it becomes bitter and it causes all kinds of problems inside. And so often the will of God for us is just the opposite of that. So often when the Lord leads us in a way, it tastes somewhat bitter in our mouths. It doesn't always taste immediately joy-producing, but in the long run, it produces a lot of joy. As I was training for my big bike ride that I take every year this year, I remember times in, in March and April when it was raining and cold and windy, and I, it was time for me to go out and train, and I didn't want to. And I just kept telling myself, Charlie, a little bit of pain now will produce a lot of joy later. A little bit of pain now, a lot of joy later. And that's life in Christ. It's life in Christ. To see our sin before Him and confess them before Him and seek to peel them off of our bodies and put them aside, this is painful. I, I acknowledge that completely. Believe me, I know this isn't fun. But a little bit of pain now means a lot of joy later. There's a joy waiting for you that you can't conceive because you're clinging on to things that you think will give you joy. But in fact, they're robbing joy out of you. The very things you think are the solution are the problem. And if the Lord, if you would allow the Lord to, to show you this, then you would know His joy over time. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. It's not easy at all. And there's a thing in our culture that we really need to know. And that is that we're not meant to do this thing alone. In our culture, especially among Scandinavians, not just Americans, but especially with Scandinavians, we love doing things alone. We pride ourselves on individualism. But this is not the vision of God for growth in Christ. It's not. In fact, it does violence to the vision of God for growth in Christ. We really need each other. So did you notice in Hebrews 12... Did you notice that it's not the language of me, but it's the language of we? Let us run the race. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us cast aside sins. Let us cast aside the weight. The vision here is about us, not about individuals. It's about the body of Christ. It's about us as a team. If we're to put the weights away, if we're to peel the sins back off of our body and get the constriction away, we desperately need each other. And I mean that word desperately. We desperately need each other. That's why texts like this are in the Bible. I want to read you two texts from Hebrews, and they're up here on the screen. First of all is chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Take care, brothers and sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay, so what's the solution? But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other for this, friends. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And the point is, we need each other not to harden our hearts. That's the point. If you just try to go do this off in the woods by yourself with you and Jesus and no other help, your heart is going to harden. You need each other and I need you desperately. Now fast forward to chapter 10, verses 23 to 27. Let us hold fast. Another way to translate it is that cling to. Let us cling to the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So you see, not just leave this to chance. Let us consider this. Let us think about it. Let us devise ways to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on deliberately after sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Beloved, we desperately need each other in order to remove the weights and remove the sins from our lives. And the stakes with this are very, very high. They're very high. If you look at the end of Hebrews 10 there, this is not a joke. This is as serious as serious gets. If we give ourselves to the deceitfulness of sin, the likelihood that we will experience the wrath of God gets higher and higher as the days go by. And nobody wants to taste the wrath of God. Nobody, believe me, nobody wants to taste the wrath of God. But mitigating against our sins so that we know the mercy rather than the wrath of God is not a me thing, it's a we thing. We desperately, desperately need each other. Which is why the next phrase in Hebrews 12 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So let's turn our attention now to that phrase. This word for endurance, run with endurance. It literally means, you can get this picture in your mind, it means to remain under something. So there's a weight, there's a difficulty. And for a runner, it's the difficulty of just enduring, right? I don't like running. I'm actually trying to take up running a little bit right now just to mix up my exercise life. And it's hard. That's my first insight about running. Running is hard. It's really hard. And what he's saying is in that hardness, just stand up under it. Just keep pushing through. Keep pushing through. Keep pushing through. It means to run and keep on running. And it implies that we Christians are in a marathon and not in a sprint, right? It means that we're to run and run and run and run and run, not run as fast as we can and then burn out. Sprinters have this amazing ability to produce a lot of power and a lot of speed over a short distance, but they can't make it last. They, they burn out. I had the privilege of watching some bike sprinting this last Thursday, and they were really fast, but the races were really short, too. If you weren't paying attention, the race was over. You didn't even know who won, because just almost as quick as it started, the thing was over. That's the life of a sprinter. But marathoners, they know how to run and run and run and run and run and run. I cannot imagine running for 24 miles or whatever a marathon is, but they know how to do it. And being a Christian is like being a marathoner, not being a sprinter. It's really important that we get this distinction in our heads. You are being called to run and keep on running. So one of my mentors, Tom Steller at Bethlehem, he loves to say, you've got to find the pace to finish the race. You gotta find the pace to finish the race. We're not trying to go as fast as we can and then just burn out. This is not the picture. The picture is run toward Christ. Fix your eyes on Him. Run and run and run and keep on running. Keep on running. Keep on running. Keep on running. Bear up under the weight and just keep on running. You are in a marathon. You are in a marathon. And so this little phrase, the, the race that is set before us, 
One thing we can be for sure about it is that it's not a short race. It's a very long race, and we have a lot of enduring to do. Another thing that we can be sure about is that the race is not abstract, and it's not undecided where we're supposed to run. This is the race that has been set before us. At the end of July, Kim and I take a long bike ride every single year, and it's 300 miles, and every single turn is already marked out for us. Big, huge orange signs saying, go that way, go this way, go that way, go this way. And wherever there might be doubt, they actually put a person there to say, hey, hey, go that way, go that way. The race has been set before us. Someone who came with us for the first time this year asked, where's the, where's the map of the route? Because I really need the map. And I said to her, well, here's the map, but let me tell you, you don't need the map. All you have to do is pay attention. And if you'll pay attention, the signs are going to point and tell you which way to go. And life in Christ is much like that. I, I acknowledge there are not huge orange signs waiting outside telling you exactly which way to go. I acknowledge this. But they are in the Word of God. Everything we need for discerning the race set before us and for turning to the left and to the right and going straight and maybe making a U-turn, everything we need is contained in the Word of God. The question is not, is the wisdom there? The question is, are we paying attention to it at all? So, if you're feeling lost in the woods right now, if you're feeling like you can't discern the race set before you, well, I want to encourage you to ask yourself a couple of probing questions, and here's just a few you could ask. First of all, am I spending adequate time in the Word and in prayer? Are you, are you seeking God at all? Are you going after Him? Or are you just living life the way you want to live life and expecting that God should speak to you through the radio or the TV or something? Or are you going to the source? Are you going to the Word and listening? Now, some of you would say, yes, I am, and I still feel lost in the woods. Well, another question to, to just probe yourself with. Are you just putting your time in with God? When you read the Bible and pray, are you just sort of putting your time in? Or are you truly submitting yourself to the Lord? And this journal of mine that I was reading yesterday, this was from 2003. And one of the things that I noted in there that God was pushing on me about was self-directedness. And so that kind of grabbed my attention and I read more about my journal. And, and basically what the Lord was saying to me is, yeah, you're showing up and reading the Bible every day. You're seeking me every day. You're journaling every day. But you're not listening to me. You're not hearing me. You're deciding what your life should be like. You're not listening. So Charlie, listen to me. Slow down and listen to me. Some of you are in that category. Some of you, it's not that you're not in the Word. All of that's there. You're just not listening. And I don't know exactly how to diagnose that, but the Lord does. So just go before Him and ask Him, Lord, help me. Help me to listen. Help me to truly submit my life to You. And one more question. Are you willing to humble yourself before the Lord and His Word and do anything that He asks you to do? As you begin to listen, are you listening with a kind of ears that says, Lord, whatever you say, I will do. You are the Lord, I am not. You are the vine, I am just a branch. You have eternal knowledge, I have just this tiny little brain that's spinning around on a tiny little planet in a tiny solar system in a relatively small galaxy in a massive universe. I am nothing, you are everything. What you say, I will do. Generally speaking, do you come with that disposition before the Lord? You see, the problem with us when we feel lost in the woods, it's not so much that God isn't speaking. It's not that God is silent. He's not silent. 
He's speaking to you everywhere. The, the issue is that we're not listening to Him. The issue is that we've let other things come into our lives and distract us and even numb us to the things of God. And then when we feel lost in the woods, we turn to God and say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you being clearer with me? In one way or other, we begin to blame God, but friends, the blame is not God's. The blame is ours. And the journey toward forgiveness and healing and change and, and, and getting back into the race and focused on the race begins with just admitting that fact. Our Father is incredibly gracious. Amen? It says in the Bible that He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's eager to forgive and pour grace upon us. But it all begins with going before Him and saying, Lord, even if I don't get the details, I acknowledge I'm the problem. I am the problem. I am the problem. So help me, Father. Help me to bring myself before Your Word in such a way that I actually submit to You and believe in You and follow You. So if you are feeling a little bit lost in direction right now, I would, I would say just one more thing. Don't look for a big, huge, sort of epiphanal moment with God where, you know, there's singing and bright lights and all that stuff. Don't look for a big experience with God. Every once in a while those things come, but they're very rare. Just take the small daily steps in the right direction. Tune your ear to the voice of God by tuning your ear to the Word of God. And the more the Word tunes your ear, you will discern His voice. And believe me, when the time is right, He'll give you the direction for which way your path should go. He may not tell you everything you want to know, but He will tell you every single thing that you need to know. And like others, you'll find that He is faithful. So, one more phrase from Hebrews 12 here. Look to Jesus, or looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So the picture here is now that as we run this race that's marked out before us, there's a focal point we're supposed to fix our eyes on and not take them off. And that focal point is Jesus Christ. The word for looking, if you are to literally lay it out, literally means to not look at anything else. Or to put it positively, it means to intensely focus your attention. It means to fix your eyes on something and refuse to be distracted. It means to have the, the kind of concentration that a Tiger Woods has when he's golfing. To me, the most amazing thing about him is not his skills, it's his mental focus. That kind of focus is, I think, what the writer here is about. Or it's the kind of focus that a guy like John Piper has when he's preaching. I remember one Sunday... I was thinking about this yesterday and I remembered a, an experience where we were at Northwestern College and he was preaching and the floor at Northwestern is sloped really steeply. And someone in the middle of his sermon, way back up at the top, dropped a baby bottle. And it must have been full because it started rolling down and you could hear it picking up steam, you know, as it's going down. And it's clanking into stuff and banging and finally wax against the stage. And I was so impressed as I watched Pastor John. He didn't flinch for a second. He didn't look in the direction of the noise. He didn't pause his sermon. Nothing distracted him. He was totally fixed and focused on the thing God had sent him to do that Sunday and he let nothing get in his way. That kind of attention is, I think, what the writer of Hebrews has in mind for us. He wants us to fix our eyes on something and it's not the cloud of witnesses. It's not even the race itself. It's not the finish line. It's not the prize. It's Jesus Christ Himself. In some ways, I suppose you could argue that the finish line and the prize is Jesus Christ Himself. And so fix your eyes on that and let nothing distract you. Nothing. 
Kim used to be a competitive ice skater. And she has said that when she got into her routine and started doing all her flips and twists and all that stuff, she couldn't even hear the crowd. It's not that she was physically incapable, it's that she was so focused, everything else just tuned out. So again, the hymn writer, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face and the things of this world, the weights and the sins will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. The key to living the Christian life, the key to seeing this race that's set before us, the key to running with passion and freedom and joy is to fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ and let nothing take our eyes off of Him. He is the one who founded our faith, the writer says. He is the one who through all circumstances of life is perfecting our faith, the writer says. He is the great object of our faith who will show Himself to be faithful in every single thing. And so He alone is worthy of the kind of focus that fixes its eyes and refuses to be distracted. There's nothing else in this life that is worthy of that kind of attention. And again, the way we fix our eyes on Him is by fixing our eyes on the Word. God has revealed Himself in and through and by the Word of God. And as we approach those words and come to understand them and fix our attention on them, we fix our eyes on the One who gave them. We learn to put the weights aside. We learn to put the sins aside. We learn to grasp onto Christ and refuse to let go. We learn to run with passion and endurance. Or if I can close up by putting it in the language of Ephesians 6.16. We learn to take up the shield of faith and fight the good fight. We learn to be enshrouded, literally enshrouded by the faithfulness of God as we simply fix our eyes upon Jesus and go in the way that He commands us to go. Jesus Christ, uh, Hebrews says, endured the cross that was set before Him for the joy that was set before Him. And He did that by fixing His eyes on God the Father. If we had time, I would take you to particular texts to show you that's what Jesus did. Whatever the Father does, that's what I do. Whatever the Father says, that's what I say. He was totally fixated on God the Father. And now He says to us, His followers, fix your eyes on Me. Fixate your lives on Me and then run with all that you're worth. That's the key to the Christian life. This is what it means to take up the shield of faith. It simply means to fix the eyes on Jesus and refuse to be distracted by anything. And I promise you, because the Word of God is promising you that if you will fix your eyes on Him and follow Him come what may, you will find Him to be faithful. You will find Him to be a shield that quenches every single flaming fiery dart of the evil one. And you will join this great cloud of witnesses someday in the eternal worship of this great God. Let's pray. Our Father, You are faithful and You will always be faithful. Great is Your faithfulness, O God. People have been singing about Your faithfulness for thousands and thousands of years and they will sing about Your faithfulness to all eternity because You are faithful. And Your faithfulness is a shield for all who believe. So I want to end as I begin and just ask You, Father, to help us fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ. 
Help us to turn away from all other distractions and to turn toward the great and glorious center of all things. Oh, Father, help us, I pray. In the great name of Jesus, I pray, help us. And please receive now our worship that is due your name. Amen.